Blog Talk Radio. Marcia Joyner with Betrayed by Hospice. Thank you, Marty, for having the forum for us to talk. This, this show is about people who have lost loved ones to medical predators at hospitals, nursing homes, and mostly at hospices for care that they are supposed to be compassionate. But what our guests have experienced is there is no compassion in that. We don't say that all hospices are bad but many of them are, and the ones that we have experienced are, and they have ended our loved one's life prematurely. Many have gone into hospice not because they were dying and death was imminent just around the corner, but they were tricked into believing if they went in, hospice would take care of them, they wouldn't have to go to the hospital, and they wouldn't have to go to the doctors, and they would still receive care. Many of our guests have told their heartfelt stories about losing their loved ones to being sedated with opioids, antipsychotic drugs, until they die from the drugs, dehydration, and starvation. The last days of their life were taken from the patient and the family. The plan of action that hospice started, they didn't explain it to the family, to the patient, and they didn't know that they were going to start giving them these drugs, so there is no consent. I host these shows because my mom was cruelly murdered in June 2017, and it took me six months to find anybody who would listen to me and who believed what I was saying and didn't just say, you're grieving, you're trying to find someone to blame. I just thought it was very odd that you know my mom had been murdered, and then I found out it was happening across our nation. Today, we have Terry Worgan, and she is going to tell us about what happened with her husband, John Worgan, who was a very active man. She lost John February the 15th in 2017, and he was only 78 years old. This was in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. So I'm going to let Terry talk to you about what happened with him. Towards the end of our hour, I will open it up for conversation if anybody has comments or questions. And by selecting one on your phone, it will put you in a queue with Marty, and then we'll take your questions or your comments. So, Terry, I'm glad to have you here tonight. I'm sorry for the circumstances, but I want to give you an opportunity to tell us about John. Thank you, Marcia, for having me on. Um, and thank you for all the support you've given me and the time you've spent with me over the past few weeks. Uh, my husband, John, was a very active 78-year-old man. He continued to work full-time in 2016, running his own nationwide commercial real estate company. Uh, in the spring of 2016, he negotiated the sale of a major South Florida oil company, and both the buyer and the seller had been his clients for decades. Um, he went to the gym every morning by 5 o'clock. He was up at 3 o'clock every morning, would bring me coffee in bed, the newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, and the Cape Cod Times would hit the driveway between 3.15 and 3.30. And he would read the papers, have his coffee, and be off to the gym by 4.30 to be there before the doors open at 5. Um, he was on the board of assessors. He was on the town committee. He ran for public office the year before. So he was a very active and very healthy 78-year-old uh, man. In his entire adult life, he had two health issues. He had an artificial heart valve replaced in, in salt in 1986, and he was on Coumadin for that. That was not from heart disease, but was from rheumatic fever. And in 1991, he had kidney cancer, and the kidney was removed, and no further treatment was necessary. So up until 2016... That was the extent of the health issues. So in July of 2016, 
I overheard him say on the 4th of July to his son he had a pain in his side that would not go away. Of course, he didn't mention it to me because he didn't want me to worry. But the next day, he went to the primary care doctor, and tests were done. So he did x-rays, and it was discovered that he had a gallstone. But the next morning, we got a phone call from the doctor saying that his blood work showed an extremely high calcium count, and he should go to the emergency room to have this investigated. So he went to the emergency room. He was admitted. Uh, Several tests were done, but they didn't reach a diagnosis uh, because the plasma cells were gathered incorrectly and they would need to be redone as an outpatient. So five days later, he had an appointment with the surgeon uh, to see about this gallstone. He awoke that morning in excruciating pain, and I called the surgeon's office, and the surgeon said to meet him in the emergency room. So off we went to the emergency room. He had surgery that day, came through that beautifully. Um, Was recovering from the surgery, working his way back to the gym. Uh, Had not made an appointment yet to follow up to have the calcium test redone, the plasma test redone. So in August, about 28 days later, he went for his routine blood work for his Coumadin. And that was the day of the opening game, the season open of the Patriots. And there was no bigger Patriots fan than my husband and my grandson. So the two of them were to the height. I don't know whether that's the dimension of Patriots or not, but that's what they were doing. So John's phone rang, and he ignored it. My granddaughter and I were in the grocery store and buying junk food for the game. And when our primary care doctor could not, Um, reached John, he called me at the grocery store and said, you need to get him to the emergency room now. His calcium is life-threatening high. So we rushed home, and I told John he had to go to the emergency room. Of course, he didn't want to go. He wanted to watch the game. He said, I'll go tomorrow. And it was only when our granddaughter started to cry and said, Poppy, I don't want you to die, that he finally agreed to go. So Off we go to the emergency room. They admit him, uh, and they do a bone marrow biopsy and discover that the high calcium is being caused by uh, multiple myeloma. So he came under the care of an oncologist who was on staff at the hospital and whose office was in the hospital. So when we refer to him going to the hospital, it's for treatment, not as an inpatient uh, through the next few weeks. So he did extremely well with his treatment. He had six intravenous chemotherapy treatments a month and was on an oral drug called Revlimid. So he'd go three weeks on, one week off. By October, he had um, done so well that his oncologist, his primary care, and our oncologist gave gave him the clearance to take a seven-week cruise to the Mediterranean. And this was our reward for the sale of this Florida oil company. So we had been looking forward to that. Now, during this cruise, we would be in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea for more than three of the seven weeks and at points thousands of miles away from any medical facility except the ship infirmary. So they were fairly confident that um, he would be fine, although we went with a lot of trepidation from our friends and some of our family. But... We went and we had a great time. So we came home in December of 2016, and he was still under such good control that his treatments were changed from six intravenous um, treatments a month to three injections a month, which was huge. And also John was referred to go to Dana-Farber um, to see Dr. Paul Richardson about the possibility of a bone marrow transplant. And he had been referred first back in uh, September, the beginning of October, but we didn't get there before we left on our cruise. So he was certainly going outstandingly well. He was still swimming and lifting weights and up and out of the house every day. He never spent a day sick in bed, ever. So jump forward to January the 17th, um, 
he's had his appointment with his oncologist. He saw the oncologist once a month. And the oncologist ordered just a routine scan because he had not had a chest scan or one of his abdomens since we'd left him before the cruise in October. And those that scan showed that he had developed pleural effusions around his lungs. Now, pleural effusion is fluid around the lung, not in the lung. And it's a very common side effect of the revlimid he was taking. So the next day, the primary care ordered Lasix for John to treat the pleural effusions. And that day he went to swim, he went to lift weights, he was working outside, uh, it was a nice day, and that night we went out for dinner. So this was certainly not something that he was sick from when he was still going. The 24th of January... I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, the 24th of January, the oncologist told him to stop the Revlimid and that he would start another drug on his next cycle. So John had his upcoming physical at the beginning of February. So the last week of January into the first week of February, he saw his oncologist for the regular appointment. He saw his cardiologist for an echocardiogram for the physical, and then we had the physical on February the 3rd. So all three of his doctors saw him in that last week before the sequence of events started. And all of them have said to me he was in no stage of dying. So he, on Friday, February the 3rd, he goes for his physical. And the primary care tells him to stop taking the Lasix because he's dehydrated. So fine, John was the last to get off that. That was one less pill, and he really did not like taking pills. So the following Tuesday, four days later, um, he went for his treatment, and which was his injection. And the doctor, the oncologist, came in, and he had seen John's blood work from the physical, and he was concerned about John's high uric acid count. Um, which comes from the dehydration of cell. I can still see him looking at John as if to say, dear God, we got this far with the cancer, and I don't want you getting gout. So he ordered an IV of Rasper, in this case, to lower for uric acid. So while John was in the chair with the IV in his arm, the nurse comes back with another IV of Lasix. And John said to her, I was just taken off Lasix last Friday by the doctor because I was dehydrated. And she kind of half laughed and said, oh, he ordered fluids. You'll be fine. Don't worry. So what does one do? I wish now I had gotten up off my chair and gone and found the doctor and double-checked. But one assumes that you're being told the correct information. Well, and she seems pretty emphatic about it, right? Right, exactly. Like she knew what she was doing, and we didn't. So it turns out after the fact, I found out that, no, the doctor did not order the Lasix. So that's one of the first mistakes. And this was in the hospital. He was not an inpatient, but his treatments were in the hospital. So this was a hospital nurse that did this. So he came home and, of course, started to urinate and became more and more dehydrated. Thursday and Friday, we had a major blizzard, so nobody went anywhere. But by Friday afternoon, it had become clear that we needed more help than Gatorade to get things back in balance. So we talked about going to the hospital that afternoon, but we figured he'd be up all night. They'd be redoing all the tests that they just did for his physical, that we would try to get some rest and go to the hospital in the morning. So we... We did get, we didn't get much rest, but it was better than being up all night at the hospital. So the next, and I had written out, by the way, everything that had happened. I, I had put the results of his physical. I had put the, um, his blood work. I had written out an explanation of what had happened, that he had been on Lasix and then taken off Lasix. And so they had all this in writing. 
So I called 911 because I didn't want to, it was still snowing, and I did not want to get stuck in the snow with John in the car. Mm-hmm. So, and they're just two blocks down the street from our house. So paramedics come and walk in. And my my 911 call clearly states, it tells the story about being taken off Lasix, given Lasix on Tuesday, and now he's dehydrated. So that was clearly the reason for my call. So um, the paramedics walk in, and they take one look at him. He was sitting on the couch, dressed ready to go, and not happily going, but he was dressed ready to go. And they took one look at him and said, he's dehydrated. <laughs> yeah, we know that. So they take him, they put him on the gurney, or he got up and got on the gurney. He asked me to put on his shoes, um, and off they went. So, of course, I couldn't go in the ambulance, so I followed them, and it, it was white out snow. So it took me about half an hour to get there. And by the time I got there, he was in the emergency room. The first statement in the emergency room record is, and I'm reading from the record itself, patient with reaction to chemo and placed on Lasix, told dehydrated, then repeat Lasix dose. So they know what happened. The emergency room doctor enters in the record five minutes later, off Lasix recently. So despite knowing that and despite having in writing what had happened, the first thing the emergency room doctor did was order double the dose of Lasix that he was given four days before. So he's now been given two IVs of Lasix by people at the hospital that know and have entered into the record that he's already dehydrated. They also, for some reason, keep his breathing, his oxygen on room air was 100%, which I wish mine was that. Um, His carbon dioxide was low. They did not even give him oxygen in the ambulance, but for some reason in the emergency room, they put him on BiPAP, which CPAP machines to breathe. And so they, they did various tests and blood work and whatever, and... About 10 o'clock, they came and said they were admitting him to ICU. So John looked at the nurse, and this nurse he had had, by the way, on one of our previous stays, and she remembered him, and he remembered her. So, and she, she was very good and very attentive, and certainly her, she took care of him for three hours. So her words about John's condition certainly are the most reliable of anyone in the emergency room. So John asked her why he was going to ICU. I mean, this is a man who's sitting up and conversing, completely coherent. So she said, any patient on BiPAP automatically goes to ICU. So we're like, okay, (laughs) off we go to ICU. And uh, on the way up in the elevator, she and I, the nurse and I are having a conversation about the power outages from the storm and whatever. And I'm telling her about our generator, and she's asking questions. And I sent myself a text to get her the name of our generator guy. So this was a very relaxed situation. This is not something that we're going to ICU, and I think you're going to die any minute. Absolutely. Can you? Can I stop so, you one second? What What actual date was this? In February. Saturday, Saturday, February the 11th. 11th. Okay. Okay, I this just wanted to get the date on that. Okay. This whole thing was an eight-day event. Tuesday morning, as I sent you that weekend before, was the Super Bowl, and he's texting the kids, and we were eating lobster and, you know, going out mm-hmm. for meals. So in the morning that he went for that appointment, he was up again at 3, out to get his paper by 5 and his lottery ticket. He did not go to the gym that morning because his appointment was at 8 o'clock. But he, he was still active and on the go. So we get up to the emergency, up to ICU, and the first thing they do is remove the BiPAP. But he was glad because he didn't feel he needed it anyway. I realize now that that was the first thing that they were doing to completely stop his care. They, they removed what now? 
the BiPAP, the, the breathing machine. Okay, he, the oxygen. Okay. But that that was the reason he was in ICU in the first place. So they never gave him oxygen after that. His oxygen remained between 98% and 100%. The carbon dioxide was low. He had normal respiratory effort. He was doing fine. So the first thing that happens is he asks for something to drink. And the nurse says, no, you may not have anything to drink. And I look at the board in the room, and it says, nothing by mouth, aspiration risk. Thinking, that's odd. And also, next to the doctor's name in parentheses, it says gray. So I asked the nurse what that meant, and she said, oh, that's the gray team that will be taking care of her, taking care of him. Now I've come to to realize that the gray team is the team that executed his death. They're the ones that told the lies. They're the ones that worked together to end his life. And what they say and entered in the records is completely the opposite of what the other people at the hospital say who are not the gray team. So it didn't bother me too much at first. I mean, sometimes they say, you know, if you need a test or whatever, they don't want to have fluids. So very shortly after that, in comes a pulmonologist from the great team. And he says John has double pneumonia. So that was a little shocking, but, again, we went through this whole story about the Revlimid, and pneumonia is another very common side effect of the Revlimid, anything involving the lungs. So... John asked why he couldn't have anything to drink, and the pulmonologist said, I don't know. It's not my order. So John, and this was the one thing that I did know in the hospital, and I was trying to get answers and never got any answers. John never again had a drop of water on his tongue. They gave him no water. They gave him no food. They gave him no supplemental nutrition. He was alert and oriented times three, his lungs were clear. I found out after he died that he did not have pneumonia. His lungs were, in fact, clear. No swallow screen was ever done, and he did not have one aspiration risk, but he was denied water and food for the last five and a half days of his life. And I think that bothers me. Next to his death, that bothers me the most. How does a human being do that to another human being? So Because they don't care. That's it. That's it. I mean, if you would do that to a dog, he'd be in jail. Um, but, again, we were trusting. It's like, and they did have an IV going, which I thought, well, he's getting hydration that way, and I'm, I'm rationalizing in my mind while trying to get this, his fluids back in balance, and, you know, I, I, I just tried to rationalize it. So during the night... Um, now, you know, people are coming in and out, not many. They're not giving him much attention. They never got him out of bed. They, in the end, they never changed the sheets the five days he was there. He came home and died in the hospital gown. They put on him in the emergency room on Saturday morning. He couldn't get out of bed, although he tried several times, but he could not get out of bed because he had the IV connected at the head of the bed on one side and the catheter bag at the foot of the bed on the other side. So there was no way he could maneuver to get out of bed. But he's still alert. Oh, yes. He was alert and oriented times three. Yes. Right. And the I just want to make sure that everybody understands that this man is still alert. Okay. Right. And... And the great, the non-gray team says that. It's in writing. And this is what I don't know how the hospital will ever understand when I get to the point of really confronting them, seriously, with a lawyer, I hope. Um, how do you say that your non-gray team says one thing and the gray team tried to make him to be out a senile old man who was so sick and bedridden and had so many things wrong with him, you would expect him to die. So, and this, this is what's been the interesting thing. I'm, it's been two years, and as I told you, I'm still going through the medical records and still finding things. And this was, I know with your mother, you realized pretty much right away what had happened. This has taken me months, months, 
because I'm just finding piece by piece by piece to the puzzle till one day the light bulb went on. It's like, oh, my gosh, they really did kill him. Right. And then it's taken me weeks to start to accept that. It so, is. It is because you expect that you would recognize it and that you would know, but at the time you have absolutely no idea that this is going on. There's, you just right. don't. When did, would it ever go through? It never went through my mind. I was unhappy with this care, and I was complaining to the primary care, and I was complaining to everyone who came in the room that why is he still flat in bed? You know, if he had pneumonia, why are he flat in bed? Doesn't that make it worse? And I just never got any answers. But it never went through my head that they were looking me in the eye and lying to me. It never went through my head to question are you treating him or are you just telling me you're treating him? It never went through my head to say, are you giving him his medications or aren't you? You just don't think that way. You assume that you go to the hospital and they're going to do everything that they can do possible to save your life. Right. So, That's right. Um, let's see. So we go through Sunday. We go through all day Saturday. Saturday night into Sunday morning, the nurse comes into the room and John was sound asleep and um, she asked if he had a religious affiliation and I said, yes, he's Catholic. I I was on my computer making notes for the primary care doctor. I was in touch with him multiple times a day throughout this, even though he can't have any say in the hospital, he certainly was guiding me through or trying to guide me through for what we knew. And um, she said, I, I said he was Catholic, and she said, I think we better call on the priest. I'm like, I'm like, scored. So in comes the priest, and he starts to administer last rites. And during this commotion, John wakes up and was quite stunned to see the priest standing at the foot or beside his bed. So they talked for a while. He finished administering. You have a question? No. Okay. Um, so they talked for a while, and after about 10 minutes, the priest left. I still do not know what precipitated that call to the priest other than his heart rate was very high. Now, after, again, going through the records, I discovered that shortly before they called the priest, one little hospital who's sitting in the bowels of the hospital in the middle of the night writing prescriptions for a patient she knows nothing about, ordered digoxin, which is for your heart. However, it's not the heart medicine that John was on. And in reading about it, I found it's very dangerous to give it to a patient who is on Lasix or who is dehydrated. So they what started the that drug? IV. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it's, it's spelled okay. D-I-G-O-X-I-N. I think it's digoxin. It's a form of digitalis. Okay. So they started that IV at 103 in the morning, or injected into his IV at 103 in the morning. They, and it was supposed to be continuous for one day. They stopped it at 140. So they knew something wasn't right. So, of course, I didn't know that till after he was gone. So we talked for a while about the priest being in and about last rites, and um, I asked him how he felt, and he said well, he was very tired, but he didn't have any pain. But he drifted back off to sleep. So about 4.30, and this I want to say to anyone who has a family member in the hospital. You need someone beside that hospital bed 24-7 with a pencil and paper, and when somebody comes in to give them a drug, you need to ask what the drug is, who ordered it, and what it's for. Absolutely. That's absolutely right, Terry. And it doesn't matter what condition the patient's in because eventually that patient's going to drift off to sleep. 
and you don't know what they're doing in the middle of the night. I've discovered. Mm-hmm. So she well, came in. Well, you really can't trust what they say either, but you're right. You need to ask that question, and then you need to look it up yourself. That's exactly and, and right. Maybe you, and maybe you even do that before they give it to them. If you have absolutely any concern at all, then you look it up before they give it to him because your husband was not in a dire situation where he was gasping for breath or, you know, his oxygen level was bad or anything. So it wasn't imminent that they had to give it to him right then. No, that's true. And the irony is, Marcia, he was a cigar smoker. And I used to raz him. I was just saying to death, but I used to give him the hardest time about smoking that cigar. And to think that his oxygen on room air was between 98 and 100%, I'm going to guarantee my oxygen is not between 98 and 100% most times. Mm-hmm. So that, that really says something. So anyway, she comes in at 4 o'clock in the morning and injects him with, I bet you can guess the drug, Ativan. Yeah. So again, the little honey sitting in the bowels of the hospital writing drug orders. And there was no reason. He was, he was not agitated. He was not anxious. He was back asleep. So but the thing is, you the, wouldn't know, if, when they gave him Ativan, you wouldn't know what it's for because I, di- I didn't know no. what that was for, that it's for someone who is, you know, for anxiety. They just give it to, to them. They don't explain what it's for or what it will do to them. And right. he's and sleeping, and they give it to him because he's anxious? Really? That's what they said. Well, no, that, there was really no conversation about it. I really didn't question her. I assumed that she was giving him something that he needed to get well. And the first 24 hours, I didn't really question the drugs. So according to the non-grade team, he stays alert and oriented till 3, till about four hours after that injection of Ativan. And then he goes to they make him a confused, disoriented person. Well, of course, they don't have a variety of terminology. You're either alert and oriented or you're not, or you're confused and disoriented. They didn't say he was unconscious, and that's what he was. He was never confused. He was unconscious. So that went on. The rest of Sunday, and I, I really don't know without looking how many more shots they gave him. So, Monday, I finally get in touch with the primary care voice to voice, not through text. And he asked me if the oncologist had been notified. And I said, We asked that in the emergency room, and they promised us he'd be notified immediately. We asked for him to take over John's care since he was on staff at the hospital and John's oncologist, he was not allowed because he was not the admitting physician. So they completely disregarded the oncologist. And he's right there at the hospital. John's bed was over his office. John's bed was over. His office was one floor down below John's bed. So the primary care gets on the phone with the oncologist he did not had not been notified. He did not know why John was that John was in the hospital. He was wondering why John hadn't shown up for his appointment that morning. So he comes up and he brings with him his partner, and he is boiling. And I can I can just see the bulges in his neck, and he's trying to be calm for me. He goes over and he examines John, and he. Then he and his partner go out to the nurse's station, and they're on the computer for about 20 minutes. He comes back, and he looks at me, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, Terry, I see nothing fatal here. So, I mean, that's I'm relieved because I'm thinking when they call the priest in for last rites, he's dying. So now here is his doctor who knows him better than anybody saying he's not, there's nothing fatal. He also called primary care doctor and told him that he expects 
long-term survival and much success with the new chemo, which was going to be started at the next session to um, replace the revelment. So he's not at all thinking that John's dying. Um, so he leaves, and about an hour later, the pulmonologist comes back in. Now, I'm getting, my girlfriend's listening in, and she knows how my blood pressure rises, and she can just picture my pressure is going up and up and up. And I'm ready, getting ready to kill now. I want, I want answers. So the pulmonologist comes in, and I said, well, Dr. Basile was just here with his partner, and he examined John, and he looked at the computer, and he said, I see nothing fatal here. So what is going on? Marsha, I can see it like it was this morning. It was the strangest thing to see the blood drain from his face. And he turned snow white. So 10 o'clock Monday night, after this man has been flat on his back for three days, he starts With no food and no water. No food and no water this guy starts ordering tests. Every single test came back normal. His lungs were clear. His brain was clear. He had no edema. Everything's good. I didn't find out those results until after John was discharged. So this doctor, though, who is now stone white or snow white, writes a prescription for two doses of fentanyl. I don't know whether I said John was opioid naive and never had pain. For John to take a Tylenol was something. And multiple myeloma. And he hasn't said that he's in any pain and they're going to give him fentanyl along with Ativan. Right. See, those are the two drugs that they always want to give to patients, fentanyl, Ativan, morphine. So um, the the non-gray team, the nurses on the non-gray team are saying, it's in the record, no pain, pain zero, no pain, no pain. So there again, so... The doctor's order, and this is how I've been finding things bit by bit by bit. And I've been back to the hospital more than 20 times to get records because, of course, they won't just give you your records. You have to ask for it by the specific name that the hospital calls it. You can't just say, I want all my records from that visit. So I went in one time and I asked them for his medication list. So she prints out the list of the medications and I look at it and I said, that's the medications he takes at home. I want the medications he was given in the hospital. And she said, oh, that's the medication administration list. So you have to call it exactly what they call it. Because they hope that you'll give up. That's right. That's exactly right. So I find in the records the doctor's order for fentanyl may be given once, may repeat once, which why you would give that with Ativan with the severe interactions that they have to a patient that doesn't have pain. So later when I go and get the medication administration list, someone changed that order, and I still do not know who that person is, but I'm going to find out who that person is because it kills me. The order was changed from once, may repeat once, to give fentanyl every four hours, which is six times a day. So he goes through the test, and they give him fentanyl at 7, they give him fentanyl at 11, they give him fentanyl at 3. So this is Monday night into Tuesday. So 4 o'clock, sure enough, 4 o'clock Tuesday morning, in comes the nurse. And she's got another shot. So now I'm, I'm really, like, trying to find out what's going on and what they're giving them. So I said, you can tell I didn't sleep much, so my temperament wasn't any better. So I asked her, I said, 
what is that? She said, it's morphine. I said, why are you giving him morphine? I said, he is not moving. He's been given fentanyl. He's been given Ativan. He's not moving. Why are you giving him morphine? And I bet you'll know what her answer was. Well, he might be in pain. So I refused it. John, when he had his kidney out, um, was given morphine, and he saw snakes crawling the walls. So everyone in the family knew to never let anyone give John morphine, but it still hasn't clicked in my head what a, a lethal combination of drugs this is. I mean, who would think? Who would think that they would deliberately be giving patient drugs to kill them? You wouldn't. Uh, no. So Tuesday morning at the crack of dawn, because I knew the primary care is in the office, very early. So at six, I called him. I got the answering machine, and I said, I, this is Terry Wargen, my husband in the hospital, and Dr. Collins knows it, and I need to talk to him now. Within five minutes, he called me back. So I told him about all these drugs, and I said, I wouldn't do anything without checking with him. I said, I refused the morphine. They can't came in to give it to him while he was sleeping. And the nurse left after I refused it, she, she writes in her notes that he's agitated and thrashing around the bed. He wasn't moving a muscle. So I said, I'm thinking about stopping all the drugs. He said, I agree with you. Doesn't, they're not needed, and he could be having reactions to the drugs. So I stopped all the drugs. So slowly that morning, Tuesday morning, he began to wake up. And he was very weak, but he was coherent. He knew who he was, where he was, who I was. He answered questions. People came in and out of the room and talked to him. He answered their questions. His children came. He talked to them briefly. Um, So he was completely with it. But I said to him, how do you feel? And he said, I've got a headache. And I thought to myself, yeah, I bet you do. Mm -hmm. So about 11.30, this attending physician, who I could not stand, and I realized now he didn't want to talk to me about John's care because John was never going to get any care. So he came to the door, crossed his arms, leaned against the door frame and said, well, he's got plasma cell leukemia in two to three days to live. What do you want to do? I How cold. How cold. And, you know, as you do find out, that's not true. But I just don't understand why someone would be that evil. Yeah. So I strongly suggested we take the conversation outside in not a nice way at all. So we go out into the waiting room in the ICU, and I said, I want him sent to Boston. Nope. The only way I'll release him is in comfort measures only. Now, I did not get that that meant hospice. The word hospice was never said. Do not resuscitate was never said. So I'm like, fine. Do what, whatever you have to do to get him out of here. I just want him out of here. Okay, so quickly goes into place the plan to get him home. So a nurse or someone came in with a clipboard, and she had like 30 pieces of paper, and she flipped the sheets, and I signed whatever they wanted me to sign. I didn't care. All I wanted to do was get him out of there. I figured he was no worse there, or no worse at home than he would be there. If I got him home, they would have no say over what we did. I was going to pick up the phone and call our primary care and get him up to Boston. But I just I wanted to get him out of there. So I go back and, and now I could not sign legally sign any of those documents because his health care proxy was never invoked. So they illegally had me sign all those documents. So um, I went back and I talked to John and I said, we're going home. Then I'll call Dr. Collins. Okay. Okay. So about 2 o'clock, someone came to the room, and I forget who that person was, and she said, you need to go home. They're delivering a hospital bed, and you need to be there. So I said, okay. And his, 
his daughter and son and son-in-law were there, so I felt safe leaving him. If I thought his death was imminent, I would never have left him. I would have not sat there four nights and five days without even taking a shower and think, oh, he might die any minute, so now's a good time to leave. Of course you wouldn't. Said, no. So I, got, I know that I got on the elevator exactly at 2.03 because I was talking to a friend on the phone, and I said, i got to go. I'm getting on the elevator to call the truck. I had the phone records that said I hung up that phone call at 2.03. At 2.06, they resumed drugging him with fentanyl and Ativan against my instructions. And his because kids he's didn't away, know. He's alert. When, when you left him at the hospital, he was sitting up and he was awake and his children were there and he was talking. Right. Right. Okay. But it never I just want to make that clear. Yes, absolutely. He was completely coherent. Um, so it didn't occur to me to say to his kids, don't let them give him any more out of the antifentanyl. I mean, I had stopped it. I assumed it was stopped. Never entered my head that they would start. So he didn't arrive home till about 8 o'clock that night, and which was I thought was odd, but you know, sometimes you have to wait for the transport company. And I had the hospital bed put out in our sunroom because he loved that room. So when he came in, I got out, I left the room, I got out of the way. And after the, the transport people left, I walked into the room and he is unconscious, not moving a muscle. No response. So now I got find out after he died, he came home once again, drugged unconscious, not dying from leukemia. He didn't have leukemia. That was a lie. The hospital cannot produce one piece of information as to a test that was even done for leukemia. They put the, there's a pathology report in the record, but it's the pathology report from August of 2016, and he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. So that's deceptive. So the nurse who was here, who I assumed was a nurse from the VNA, because a VNA nurse usually came when he came home from the hospital, thought that was standard. And she starts filling syringes with oxycodone and Ativan. And I questioned her. I said, why are you doing that? Why are you giving this when he obviously is not in pain? And she looked at me and she said the exact line in all this documentation about hospice, he's not going to make it through the night. And you don't want him going through withdrawal, do you? So I sat for 20 hours and put the stuff in his mouth every two hours until he stopped breathing on Wednesday afternoon. Because I thought you were doing what you thought I was doing. Right. I thought I was thinking more simple things. Tell, tell the audience about what you found when you did go and when he was unconscious, what you found out about his mouth. Oh, yes. Well, when he came home, he also, when I went in and looked at him, he had a fat lip and a bloody mouth and his gold tooth had been ripped out of his mouth. Ripped and the hospital out re- his gold tooth re- sometime after you left, either at the hospital or in the transit, stole the man's tooth, gold tooth. Right. I, right. I had never heard of anything so horrible, just totally despicable that they did that to him. And, you know, when you told me that, I, there is no level but, that they will stoop to yeah. or that they won't stoop to. I'm sorry. Now, I found that it's interesting because when I finally found out who the transit company was, I got a bill in October. This was in February. The hospital would not give me that information. And finally, I got a bill from them, so I knew who it was. And I went to see a lawyer who looked this over. And what I knew in November of 2017 compared to what I knew now would sit on the head of a pen. He looked at it and called it horrific. He referred it to another lawyer in Boston who was a malpractice lawyer. She wouldn't even meet with me. She sat on it for six months and wouldn't even meet with me. But I wrote a letter 
to a 16-page letter to the chief medical officer of the hospital after I had talked to him on the phone earlier with questions that he wouldn't answer. Um, after I went to the police and reported this, the assault to the police, a detective called me. He investigated. He called me and made an appointment for December of 2017 to come in. Fifteen minutes before that appointment, he called me and said, I have to cancel. I have something more important to do. I've been into the police station. I've called. I've emailed him. This man will not speak to me. And I said to another So he's been scared off. He's been scared off because the word hospice and they won't take that case. That's right. And if they had said to me, you know, well, too much time has passed, we can't track it down, we don't know, blah, 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 we can't prove anything, and blow me off, but they didn't even do that. They're just ignoring me. Right. So I write this 16-page letter to the chief medical officer in the hospital about the medication and all the other things that went wrong and the forgeries and the medical records and the falsifying of the diagnosis and blah, 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 blah. He writes back to me, and the only thing he addresses in that letter is the two. He said that I accused the ICU nurses of stealing the tooth, which I never did. I know it didn't happen there. Or I'm pretty sure it didn't happen there. Um, he, he said that the nurse saw the tooth when John was brushing his teeth, which obviously John was unconscious and was not brushing his teeth, so that's a lie. Well, He's he had a grinding. catheter in and the IV in, and he couldn't get up, so how could he be brushing his teeth? Right. So he's not bright enough to think that maybe there was somebody else here who saw it, which there was. The wife of one of our local judges, who's my next-door neighbor, was here and saw it instantly. And then he said, and hospice did an investigation, and they tried to call you, and you never called them back. He's not bright enough to know that if they had called my phone and left a message, that would have shown on my phone bill. And the other part. Well, and I mean that's like getting the fox to guard the hen house, right? I mean, right. hospice is going to call you and they're going to tell you the real story about what went down. Right. So in in my many discoveries since John was killed, I found that he was comfort measures only without consent before he left the emergency room. He was made do not resuscitate without permission. He, they never tried to treat him. They never treated his high heart rate, and they stopped his medications. They stopped his metoprolol, which he took twice a day for a high heart rate. They never treated the low blood pressure, and they entered into the record that even though the wife knows he may die without them tonight, she refused. Now, their own records don't say that I refused it. I wouldn't have refused anything without talking to the doctor, primary doctor, I couldn't refuse anything because I wasn't the healthcare proxy. So that's the lie. But they stopped all of his medications. They never tried to treat him. And both of his doctors, his medical doctor and his oncologist, said he was fine. They saw nothing that would indicate to them that he was going to die. He was healthy. You know, he had a couple of issues because he was dehydrated and they gave him a double dose of Lasix on numerous occasions, even though the documentation that you gave them said dehydrated. But um, it seems to me that they said when he was in the emergency room that he was there because he couldn't breathe. So uh, there are all kind of mistakes that were made in this situation. Um, the other thing that we were talking about and I wanted to point out, and Ron Panzer had said this in our last discussion, when you go to the hospital three, four times in a year or more, then you start getting targeted. And he had been in on several occasions, you know, for his treatment, but he had gone back because of the dehydration. And it's like you get penalized because if they're going to cost too much money to take care of you, it's cheaper to get rid of you. And, and that's a horrible thing to say, but that is the reality of what we're seeing. 
coming. Wouldn't you say that that, you know, because he had been in a couple of times. Carrie? Marty, have we lost everybody? Hello? I believe we have lost everyone. Marcia? Yes. Uh, We went blank there. I know. Um, I was talking, but I couldn't hear anybody. Terry, are you still with us? I think... Something happened there. I don't know. Unless she accidentally hit the mute on her phone. Are we still on? We're still on. Yes, we are. Okay. Um, Carrie, if you hit mute on your phone, unmute you. Um, So, okay. Um, We will continue then. Marcia, can you hear me? Um, Yeah, there you are. Did you? Okay. We lost you there for a few minutes. Yeah, I could hear you, but I don't know what happened. Yeah, yeah I, don't I don't know. Okay, yeah. so to our listeners, we don't know if you were hearing us or not, but um, we are at the end of our time, and I wanted to make sure that um, I thank Terry for coming on. I know that's hard for you to talk about this. Um, it's just been barely over two years, but I know that you carry it with you. As we talked about, you wake up in the middle of the night, and your husband's not there, and so many things that you did together that you can't do now, and it's it's tragic. And for any of the listeners that if you're not aware of stealth euthanasia, there's a website you can go to, www.hospicepatients.org, where there is a lot of information there for you. And if you have a story that you want to tell, you can contact me at Marsha Joyner, 2018 at gmail.com. And we'll be back in two weeks on May the 1st with Dr. Paul Byrne from Life Guardian Foundation. Terry, thank you so much for coming in and telling us your story. And I think you had some good information about 24-7 care. Stay right with them, ask questions, and do your research. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Just the, the one last thing I'd like to say is talking about hospice. They stopped John's Coumadin and stopped his blood pressure medicine, and even hospice calls that euthanasia in a patient oh, wow. that's not dying. So, so uh, he was targeted. But I thank you, Marcia, for all your support and caring, and uh, it's good to be with people that, know, that believe what you're talking about because a lot of people don't believe us. And it's not going to change anything for us, but if we can spare one person going through this. Because on the day I take my last breath, I will wonder how many years of life he lost. Right, and he should have been able. He should have been able to write his last chapter. And that's taken away from you and from him. And, you know, from your kids and your life completely. So it's, it's tragic when this happens. So that's why we talk about it. It's painful, but the entire intent is to make sure that we can save just one life, two lives. And as Ron Panzer says, if each person tells 10 people and then that person tells 10 people, we get more and more information out there to warn other people to look for it and do your homework and protect your loved ones. And hospice is not the only choice that you have. You can have in-home health care, and it does good to do the research to find out what other options are there. On Hospice Patients Alliance um, site, website, hospicepatients.org, there is information there that tells you what you can do, what to look for, and it's very good information. So um, I suggest you check that out. There's a Facebook group called Murdered by Hospice that is also very helpful. And I think we're out of time. Good night, everybody. Thank you for joining.
joining us tonight. And Terry, thank you. And Marty, thank, thank you very you, much. Marcia. Yep. Thank You're you, Marcia. Thank you, Marty. Good night. Okay. Good night, everyone.